Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, this morning, uh, we are starting a new uh, short teaching series on the topic of relationships. And I think relationships are an important topic for us to continually revisit on a regular basis because of how core they are to everything that God created us to experience. And so as we've discussed last week, uh, the opening pages of scripture make it apparent that God created us not only for relationship with him, but also for relationship with one another. And so another way to say it would be friendship is foundational to our flourishing. The problem is getting and remaining deeply connected to one another often feels very complicated. Relationships are admittedly hard. They can be very fragile and often feel susceptible to falling apart for almost a countless number of reasons. But the truth is, most of our relational issues result from a failure to do a few simple things well. For instance, if we could just learn to live out a few simple words, words like, I love you, I am sorry, I forgive you. If we could learn to live out these these simple words, our relationships would be so much stronger, they would be far more satisfying and way more healthy. And so to that end, I want to welcome you to the start of this new series that we're calling Three Words. And I want to begin this series with what I believe scripture would say is the very foundation of friendship. Whether those are friendships with, within our families, friendships within our marriages, with our neighbors, with coworkers, or with anyone else who calls Ridgeline home. Today, we're going to talk about love. And here's why I believe that this is the place to start. If you're taking notes this morning and you like to write stuff down, make a note of this. There is no lasting friendship apart from self-sacrificing love. There is no lasting friendship apart from self-sacrificing love. You know, it's often held that the opposite of love is hate. But the truth is, when we really sit with what Scripture describes as love, we learn that its opposite isn't specifically hate, but in fact, self. And because of this, there's simply no long-lasting friendship apart from self-sacrificing love. In fact, I would venture a guess this morning. If you were to track back any strained relationship... Okay, so maybe even a relationship in your life that is strained right now. If you were to track back any strained relationship somewhere along the way, you are going to find a lack of love as the source of that strain. Meaning, there was some decision made to put self before the other. And regardless of whether you put yourself before them or they put themselves before you, the decision to prioritize self is the antithesis of the love that we see depicted in Scripture. 
And so let's start this morning by spending a few minutes together in what is arguably the most beautiful text ever written, either in Scripture or out of Scripture, on the subject of love. If you have a Bible or an app that you like to read in, go to 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13. The only time most of us hear this is at a wedding, uh, which is super unfortunate because it has a lot more to say than just when two people are getting married. So go to 1 Corinthians 13. We're just going to simply call this message, I love you. And while you're turning there, let me just set the stage for what's happening in this larger letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, If you don't know anything about this church, uh, it will make you feel better about any church you have ever attended regardless of how dysfunctional and jacked up it might have been, I don't know that there's ever been a church more dysfunctional than the church at Corinth. And so Paul is trying to deal with this problem of growing divisions within the church at Corinth. And so there was a ton of things that were happening if you read the whole letter, but one of them was there seems to have been this clamoring for and idolizing of certain spiritual gifts, which we'll talk more about in a second. And in this pursuit was a deep desire for power and influence and importance. And so as a result, they dishonored those who, they had, who had what they viewed as lesser gifts, diminishing their importance and their value to the church. And so Paul reminds them that every church is the body of Christ. And like the human body, the church is composed of different parts and they all have differing functions. But difference in function does not mean a difference in value. We need all of our body parts. Furthermore, these virtues and gifts that they and even we are so prone to elevate as ultimate are in fact temporary. And that means there's a higher virtue on which we should set our hearts our minds, and our aspirations. And so Paul closes 1 Corinthians chapter 12 writing, desire the greater gifts and I will show you a better way. And so then we come to chapter 13 and he's gonna stress three lessons about why love is the better way. And here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, love is greater than any gift. Love is greater than any gift. Listen to the first three verses. Paul says this, If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions... And if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul here is throwing back to so many of the spiritual gifts that he's already discussed and the Corinthians apparently prized. Now, if you don't know, the Bible teaches that every person who makes the decision to place their faith in Jesus is endowed with spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit that are meant to encourage and form and to build up the local church. And so the New Testament contains a number of lists describing some of these gifts, and Paul mentions a few of them right here. He speaks of the gift of tongues, which are unlearned languages that God supernaturally imparts to some people. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. 
when the Holy Spirit enables early believers to preach the gospel in languages other than their own so that everyone present can understand the good news of Jesus in their language. But Paul also speaks of prophecy and knowledge and faith and generosity and self-sacrifice. And it's so important to note as we read, especially these early verses, that Paul is in no way demonizing these important gifts. These are all spiritual gifts that were present in Paul's own life. But at the center of Paul's conflict with this church were two competing views of spirituality. There was his and there was theirs. Two competing views of spiritual maturity. The Corinthians had elevated certain spiritual gifts like the ones that Paul mentions here, but they had neglected even more important Christian virtues that God intends to both drive and designate these very same gifts. And so outwardly, these Christians had a spirituality that was rich in religious appearances. The problem is it was also void of the very heart of Christ. And so Paul isn't criticizing these gifts. He's calling them to an even better way to practice them, namely love. So Paul says, hey, you guys can have all these important, all of these good and necessary gifts, but if you lack love, they genuinely don't matter, and your spirituality is nothing more than the shadow of true faith. And I I think that maybe the most powerful picture that the Apostle Paul uses to make his point is right here in verse one. Listen to this again. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I certainly can't speak for you, but I love drums when they are played well. And there's nothing worse than drums played poorly, But drums played well is one of my favorite instruments. When you hear a gifted drummer really lock into a simple beat, it is a thing of beauty. And I would argue even apart from from other instruments, a good groove on the drums moves something deep inside you. But you know what sound isn't awesome? Not my fave, right? No, No one's ever been like, let's listen to that for the next 47 minutes. It's, a, it's this horrible, horrible sound. Like, I, I don't care how much you love the drums. No one wants to hear someone smash a cymbal over and over and over. It's shrill. Oh, it's unnerving. And it just makes you feel like, I feel it jarring something on the inside of me. It's this terrible, terrible sound. It's piercing. You can feel it rattle you from the inside out. And Paul's saying, even the most wonderful of gifts is not only worthless, but harmful in the absence of love. And so let's just for a second drag this lesson into a few things that might feel a little bit more practical in our day-to-day relationship with Jesus. If I were to ask you to describe the most significant outward signs of your spirituality, I wonder what your answer would be. Just consider that for a second. 
If I were to ask you to describe what, what are some of the most significant out, because again, remember, Paul's not demonizing these gifts. The Bible makes it very, very clear. If Jesus has transformed our hearts, there is going to be outward signs of that. Genuine whole life transformation is progressively taking place. So what would be some of the most common outward signs of your spirituality? I often hear people say something like, well, I mean, one thing is for sure, like I study the Bible like crazy and as a result, my theology is airtight and on point. And the apostle Paul would say to that, man, that's, that's so good and so important. But if you lack love, you're just a clanging symbol. Or, or maybe you'd say, man, I try to be super generous. I give faithfully to the church and I try to help those who are in need. And Paul would say, praise God, that's beautiful. But if you are not loving, you're just a clanging symbol. Here's a big one right now. Some people would say, well, I am very, very careful to vote in line with what I believe to be biblical virtues. And Paul would say, that's an important privilege and you're right to take that seriously, but if you're not loving, you're a clanging symbol. And so here's the point. Any spiritual gift, any spiritual discipline that is divorced from a life of love is drained of its good. And so you can lack every gift, but possess love and still have everything. And even if you have every gift, but you lack love, you have nothing. According to Paul, we are lost without love. Love is greater than any gift, and there is no lasting friendship apart from self-sacrificing love. But there's a second lesson that he has in these verses for us, and it's this. Love always puts self second. Love always puts self second. Listen to these words. Many of us will be familiar with these. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So I want you to notice how Paul moves from declaring the necessity of love to describing its nature in these verses that we just read. And it's so critical that we pay close attention to this because there is just so much confusion in our culture, and even in our own thinking when it comes to the subject of love. And this is evidenced, I would argue, by how widely we use the word itself. Love has come to encompass so much that it means virtually nothing anymore. Like, think about how many things we claim to love. We love spouses and significant others. We love family members and friends but we also claim to love movies and TV shows. We love artists and art, and we love vehicles and tools and certain technologies. We love particular foods and hobbies and locations. 
And so we just, we use this same word for everything. And as a result, we run the risk of having it come to mean absolutely nothing. Like, doesn't it seem just slightly odd that I would use the same word to describe my feelings for Tammy and tacos? Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I think tacos are a gift from heaven. But I, I, I would hope that I would hold my wife in at least slightly higher regard than tacos. And if you're here and you're like, I don't know, bro, tacos are pretty good. Have fun being single forever, okay? <laughs> my point is we are in desperate need of allowing the Bible to reset our understanding of the nature of love. And so here's the very first thing we need to correct. Notice that Paul does not describe love as a way we feel, but a way we are to behave. His goal is not to provoke a feeling of affection for love itself, but a practice of it. What Paul's giving us here is ethical instruction. He is giving us love as a spiritual practice. So notice that love means being patient with someone when they are being a pain or not moving at the pace we'd prefer. Love means speaking with and treating others with kindness. Love means being in awe of what God gives to other people, but still grateful for what he's given us. Love means humbling ourselves over and over and over again. Love means being respectful rather than rude. It means being difficult, if not impossible, to provoke to anger rather than easily triggered. I think one of the worst traits in so much of American Christianity right now is we are just so easily offended by everything. How could a fallen world not fall in line with our Christian virtues? Because uh, they're not Christians. So why are we so easily offended? And when will we stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians? Love means forgiving fully and refusing to carry resentment. It means enduring difficulty, believing the best, hoping when it's hard. That's the love that makes friendship last the long haul. See, so often when we look at our own shortcomings in relationships, we think or say things like, man, sometimes I, I do have an irritation problem. Or, or sometimes I, I really do have a, a patience problem. Or sometimes I really do have a kindness problem. But the truth is, this is all symptomatic of a love problem. Every time we respond rudely, it's a failure to love. Every boast or brag is a failure to love. Refusing to forgive is refusing to love. And so let's at least make sure that we are calling it what it is because it's pretty hard to find healing in an area that we misdiagnose. So it's easy to say we love our spouse. It's easy for us to say we love our kids. It's easy to say that you love a friend or a family member. It's even easy to say that you love those that you differ with. I don't know a Christian genuinely that would not say those things. The question is, is your claim to love in line with Scripture's description of its nature? Do our claims to love hold up to this clear description of what, of what love truly is? Because we have to be done with claiming something that in our 
lives and in our behavior, we completely deny. It's one of the most destructive traits that we can live with as followers of Jesus. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. And the truth is, it's something that we are all guilty of in differing degrees. Love always puts self second. And there is no lasting friendship apart from love. And then note this third and final lesson. Number three, love is ultimate because it's eternal. Love is ultimate because it's eternal. Look with me at verse eight. Paul goes on, he says, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, I'd circle those two words in your Bible if you can, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, he's speaking of Jesus here, when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part... And then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul closes this chapter driving home two reasons why love is so important. And and, and in short, uh, all these gifts that they held in such high regard, okay? So the prophecy, tongues, the knowledge, the generosity, everything he's already talked about, they are both temporary And they are incomplete, which is why Paul says that we should prize love above everything else. And so first Paul's like, hey, hey guys, these gifts, they are are good, but they're not everything. They are a temporary necessity. When Christ returns and when he makes all things new, when Jesus puts right everything that's gone wrong, these gifts that you find so much significance in, they are going to cease. We won't need them because we will have Christ. And furthermore, he seeks to sober them and to sober us by reminding them and us that that even these gifts, they are incomplete and imperfect. And I love the way that he describes it as seeing only a reflection as in a mirror. Now you might read that and think it's a strange description because when we look in a mirror, we see clearly reflected whatever is in front of it. But you know, in in their culture, mirrors weren't the clear glass like we have today. They used polished bronze, and as a result, one's reflection was always horribly imperfect. And so maybe think something similar to our own, uh, like, funhouse mirrors. They reflected an image imperfectly. And so in the very same way, all these things that we think we know so perfectly the things that that, that we think we so clearly understand, the ways of God that we find so obvious that we just cannot conceive of how anyone could disagree with us. These things that we think are so important, listen, they are always, always imperfect. Now that does not mean that we can't know anything. And it does not mean that we should not hold deep convictions. It just means that everything we do hold should always be done so humbly. 
I am convinced one of the first things that we are going to feel when we see Jesus face to face, the way that Paul describes here in verse 12, is a, a, a deep sense of humility. I think we're going to feel this deep sense of humility as all of these things that we thought we knew so fully proved to be mere snapshots of a much larger picture we only saw in part. And so Paul would say that like a child who matures into adulthood, we should shift our attention from the immediate and the temporary to the ultimate and the eternal because that's what maturity does. It values the long game, which means that holding love is the, in the highest regard and making it our highest pursuit. That is what Christian maturity looks like. Every time I have a, it doesn't happen frequently, but it has happened a number of times where I've had a conversation with someone that tells me how spiritually mature they are and then proceeds to talk about it's because of how much Bible they've studied and how long they've been in the church. You know what the truth is? I've never met a spiritually mature person who told me they were spiritually mature. Never. If that's like your identity, I am very spiritually mature. Uh, you're not. <laughs> because there's just so much pride bound up in that. The most godly, mature people I've ever met are also the most humble. And also the quickest to be able to try to explain to you why they, where they lack maturity. Not those that are just desperately insecure to prop themselves up as being spiritually immature. I genuinely have never met someone that I looked at and thought, that person is so Jesus-y who told me they were spiritually mature. It's never happened. And so if you've ever said that to someone, please apologize to them and tell them you were wrong. And let's pursue a better way. Love is ultimate because it is eternal and there is no lasting friendship apart from this self-sacrificing love. And as we close, there are two things I really, I really do hope and pray that we would walk away with. And the first is this. 1 Corinthians 13 may just be the most succinct and powerful description in the Bible regarding not just the character and nature of love, but the character and nature of God. And I say that because 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And so again, that is more than just a statement regarding how God feels towards you. And it's much more a statement of how God actually behaves toward us. He is patient and he is kind. Even God is humble and he's God. He's not rude. He's not irritable. Jesus fully embodied this self-sacrificing love by giving his own life for ours, making a way for us to actually live within his love and to live out his love toward one another. So will you turn to him this morning in repentance and receive it? Acknowledging, some of you for the very first time, acknowledging the places that you do fall short of this. And turning to Jesus in his perfection in response, that's repentance. But second, I really do hope that we would learn to befriend this passage in a very special way. Every time I read it, it's like my heart gets a tune-up in this area. 
See, again, it isn't enough to consider ourselves loving people or to say we are loving people. Every Christian I've ever met describes themselves as a loving Christian. I think social media has made it pretty clear in the last 12 months that ain't true. Because there is so much poison and vitriol that has come out on the internet that one breath is confessing Christ and the next is spewing poison online. That is not love. So we have to at least be honest about where we're at. It's not enough to consider ourselves loving people. This is what God says love actually looks like. And so every time we sit with this passage and we, we should read it asking that God's spirit would help us to see where we need to grow in love. And so I would encourage you today, in this moment, maybe later this week, and run your behavior in each of your relationships through this text. It'll be uncomfortable, I promise you. Prepare yourself for that. But as you do so, you're going to find areas where you need to ask God's Spirit to bend your heart toward His. So today is the start of a fresh week. I don't don't know what last week held for you, what it was like for you, but we have an opportunity to make this week more loving than last. And not by just declaring love, by actually displaying it. And so let's receive God's love toward us. And let's live it out toward one another. There is no lasting friendship apart from self-sacrificing love. So where do you need to put someone else first today? Will you bow your head and pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God of love. And we, we thank you, Lord, that our own faulty, small definitions of love do not define you, that you, in the fullness of who you are, you define love. And we thank you, Lord, that in just these few verses, you have captured a snapshot for us of what true love is the love you embody, the love you created, and the love that you intend for us to display and to live out as well. And so, Lord, we just honestly, collectively, together as a community, acknowledge that we fall short of this standard on a daily basis. And we pray, God, that you would continue the process of transforming our heart more and more into yours. You created us to be your image bearers which means we certainly should be a picture of love. And so I pray that that would be true in our hearts, that it would be true in the thoughts that we think toward others, that it would be true in the words that we speak, in the way that we listen, and in the way that we behave. And Lord, we thank you more than anything else that, that you don't love us the way that we are prone to love you and one another, that your love for us is perfect and is consistent. And I pray, God, that you would help us to receive that love and be transformed by it this morning. We love you. We need you. We pray and ask that you would help us to put into practice everything that we have learned today. In Jesus' name and in one loud voice, everyone said, amen.